Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Books in American Studies. I'm Benjamin Allen Smith, your host. First off, I'd like to thank you for listening in on this podcast for the New Books Network. Secondly, I'd like to apologize for the relative lack of interviews posted lately. This spring, I was overrun with research and work necessary to complete my master's degree from the University of Georgia. Starting this month, however, interviews will continue to be posted monthly, so I thank you for your patience and understanding on that front. Also, it's my pleasure to announce the launch of New Books Network Daily, which is a synthesized page of interviews sorted into five major themes, and it's updated daily to ensure that you don't miss any new content. So check it out, and please subscribe at nbndaily.com. And now on to the interview with historian Marcus Redeker. Marcus Redeker is Distinguished Professor of American History at the University of Pittsburgh, and the topic of our discussion is his new book, The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom, out in 2012 from Viking Penguin. The book examines the popular historical case of the Amistad, the 1839 slave insurrection that took place on board a Spanish slaving vessel. The captives managed to take charge of the vessel and sail it north to the coast of Long Island, whereupon the USS Washington seized it. A lengthy legal battle ensued, but the captives eventually won their freedom and were able to return to Africa. Though many histories, plays, and scripts were written about the historical event, they all emphasize the courtroom drama, and this also includes the very popular 1997 film depiction directed by Steven Spielberg. Professor Redeker rightfully revisits the event to tell the full tale, the untold story, if you will. For example, who were these captives really, and what was at the root of the rebellion? How did they actually pull off the insurrection in the first place? Historical records tell us that instances of successful onboard slave rebellions were virtually nil. Moreover, once captured, what role did these captives play in the legal struggle for their own liberation? Essentially, Professor Riker offers a well-researched, bottom-up history of the event, placing the African captives back where they belong, as the protagonists of their own tale. And here with me today is Dr. Redeker to talk about these questions, the research involved in writing a book such as this, and much more. Professor Redeker, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Today we're discussing your new book, The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom, out in 2012 from Viking Penguin. And I'd like to start first, as we do with every author, by asking what brought you to this project? Why revisit a story told many times before? My previous book, The Slave Ship, Human History, uh, was one in which I studied the horrific reality that existed aboard these many thousands of vessels that carried millions of Africans to New World slavery. And in the process of writing that book, uh, I saw a great deal of resistance from below decks. I saw a great many uh, bloody insurrections. Uh, I saw how the slave ship itself was designed to prevent them, but they went on in any case. And I saw that they almost all failed. And when they failed, 
the decks of the ship literally ran red with blood. I noted that there were very few successful rebellions by enslaved people on board these vessels. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that, well, there's this very famous Amistad case. How did they do it? How did they actually manage to organize themselves, carry off rebellion, win their freedom, and go home to Africa, which is really very, very rare in this history of slave trade. So my reasons were were really quite specific to an earlier study and wanting to understand a human counterpoint uh, to a grisly history. Now, to some degree... Most people probably derive what they know about the Amistad case from Steven Spielberg's 1997 movie. Could you talk a bit about what's lacking in the Hollywood depiction? The movie by Steven Spielberg had many important qualities, and I would emphasize the fact that it brought the reality of uh, slave resistance and slave ship rebellion to a mass audience in ways that uh, they had never known it before. Uh, it depicted the Middle Passage. I think that was very important to deal with the violence and the horror of all that. But basically the film, like most of the previous histories, <clears throat> excuse me, presented a narrative in which the original makers of the rebellion, these 53 Africans from southern Sierra Leone, had been slowly pushed aside, in a sense, a very real sense, marginalized, by the heroic and noble white abolitionists who saved them. And, of course, the pride of place in all of this belongs to former President John Quincy Adams, uh, who, in fact, argued the case of the Amistad Africans before the Supreme Court. And he really emerges as the hero of the movie. I felt like this was a case of uh, putting the cart before the horse. In other words, the reason why John Quincy Adams had a group of people to defend before the Supreme Court was that those people had accomplished something extremely rare and important. They had made a successful revolt on a slave ship. Uh, And I felt like they were authentically the heroes of their own story. So I went back with a desire to study the African side of the story. And I must say that one of the shocking things about reading the work on the Amazon Rebellion when I first began to do it was to discover that that question I had originally posed, how did they manage to organize themselves in the rebellion, uh, nobody had really ever been interested in that. <laughs> so yeah, so I, came, I came with a new question, and answering that question then took me back to Africa and who those people were. So my uh, narrative is organized very much around the original makers of the rebellion. So would you say that the histories that have been told uh, that focus on the courtroom narrative are slanted that way because the sources are more readily abundant? Essentially what I'm getting at is how did you research this book in order to tell the story from below? Well, there are two or three interesting questions in what you say. I think the story is told as it is because somehow it allows the tellers to make the American legal system the hero of the story. Right. I don't think the legal system is the hero of the story. And one of the questions I pose in the book is, oh, do you mean the same legal system that was holding two and a half million people in bondage in 1839? Exactly. Is that the hero of the story? No, that's not the hero of the story. Um, And secondly, relatedly, the 
the older version we had was really the old-fashioned, top-down, great man type of history. Uh, and I think uh, you know the advance of social history over the past uh, couple of generations means that we can do better. So I, I was uh, confident that there would be sources about the Africans. I didn't know exactly what they would be. But when I finally got into the research, and I spent several years on it, about four years, I discovered there was a massive amount of evidence about who they were, about what they thought, about what they actually did in the rebellion, about what their lives had been like back in Africa. And some of this evidence, Ben, had been right there in the plain sight of day for any historians to use, and yet they really had never been very interested in it. So what was the most surprising or unexpected thing that you uncovered during your research? There were several discoveries that were extraordinary. I'll just mention two. Sure. One of them was that, see, here, this can be related to the previous uh, concentration by historians on the legal side of the story. It turns out that historians, for the most part, read the urban newspapers when the case was in court, but not when it wasn't. Hmm. So the most, some of the most important newspaper articles I found came in the period after the Supreme Court ruling, as the Africans were preparing to go home, and their teacher, uh, a Yale University undergraduate student named Samuel Booth, wrote a series of letters uh, to a small abolitionist newspaper in Philadelphia called the Pennsylvania Freeman. And in these letters, he basically offered very detailed observations on the lives of the Amistad Africans back in Africa. That's because he had been talking to them about this as they were preparing to go home. Right. So these letters are the source of tremendously useful information about who they were and what they thought and what some of their religious beliefs were and what their occupations had been. Uh, so I think this... Uh, uh, this really helped me to understand you know, the African background. Right. And the other thing was a, a, one of those really rare joys of discovery, uh, and that is that I found a letter written in 1852 by a missionary who went to Sierra Leone and stayed at the Mende Mission, which was established uh, after the repatriation of the Amistad Africans by missionaries who went to Sierra Leone with them. Uh, this person, a, a woman named Hannah Moore, uh, went to the Mende Mission, as it was called, and about four, this is, as I say, 1852, 13 years after the rebellion, and about 10 years after the Amistad Africans had already gone home, so there were three or four, I think, of the veterans of the rebellion who were still at the mission. And I think over the course of a holiday meal, uh, this woman, Hannah Moore, the missionary, asked these people, what is your story of the rebellion? What actually happened? And then she wrote down in great detail what they said. Hmm. So, what, so what, what that actually functions as is an oral history right. of the rebellion by the people who made it. Now, admittedly, it's many years later, and that has to be taken into account, but there are really breathtaking kinds of evidence in that that you can't find in any other source, including, for example, the debate that the Amistad Africans had down in the hold of the vessel 
when they were trying to decide whether to rise up and capture it. That moment was remembered and preserved in the oral history. Right. So those, those would be two of the discoveries that were important. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I guess that brings us back to, if we can for a moment, talk about the rebellion itself. Um, I know you, you discuss how most of the captives on board the Amistad came from different backgrounds and situations in Africa. So could you just talk about how this rebellion was even able to occur? I mean, how were they able to unite and collectively rise up? Well, this is a, an important question because, as I said earlier, one of the things that I learned in studying the slave ship is that these vessels and all of the social practices on these vessels were designed to prevent this kind of thing from happening. Right. So, for example, the Amistad African men, 49 of them, were all in fetters, in uh, manacles and shackles and neck rings. I mean, how are you going to organize rebellion in this situation? Well, uh, the standard story of getting out of the chains was that Sinke, the hero, and he was the, the leader of the Amistad rebellions, found a nail, this is at the beginning of Spielberg's film, by the way, right. and that he picked the lock and saved everybody. Well, it turns out uh, that actually does appear in a primary source, but there was another story that was told, which seems to me much more plausible, and that is that somehow the Amistad Africans had figured out how to break a particular padlock that made it possible for them to unreave all of the chains. And add to that the fact that once you learn about the backgrounds of the Amistad Africans, you know that two of them were blacksmiths. So they knew the properties of metal, and so therefore they knew how to, for example, break a padlock. So, so this, was, uh, this was certainly part of it. But more importantly, what I found was that there was an African, specifically West African, form of self-organization that they used to prepare themselves for the uprising. This was an all-male secret society uh, called the Poro Society, whose purpose in uh, Sierra Leone, as in other places, was to organize social life in villages and towns, to uh, punish those who broke the rules, to deal with dissonance, to settle disputes, and crucially, to declare war. So my hypothesis was that the Poro Society was actually meeting, a Poro Society was meeting in the home of the Amistad. And even though they represented some 10 to 12 different uh, West African ethnicities or culture groups, all of those groups had Poro Societies. So this would have been a familiar form of self-governance and self-organization to the Amistad rebels. And I did, in the end, find evidence to prove that that's actually what they were doing. That was the form that they used. That's what made the rebellion possible. It was the previous African experience. And there were even nonverbal aspects to the Poro society that enabled them to sort of gauge who stood where within that society. Is that right? I mean, I know you mentioned exactly. uh, markings on the body as one way to distinguish yes. who was a leader and who, who maybe wasn't. And that obviously, you think, played a role in this uprising as well. Is that right? Is that how Sinke became the leader? Well, basically, the one of the things that the Poro Society uh, did, and actually still does in uh, Southern Sierra Leone, is it, it handles or manages, organizes the transition from boyhood to manhood. You know, it's a traditional rite of passage. Sure. 
And one of the things that uh, someone does when they become a man is they learn to fight, they learn to become a warrior, uh, and they also are taught different kinds of sacred knowledge. Uh, the Polo Society imparted this knowledge, and in the process of bringing the boy into manhood, they would make certain marks on the body which were very specific to identify this person as a member of a particular group. The men, they had their markings, the temne, their markings, the kono, their markings, and so forth and so on. And within the Poro society, as one gained more and more sacred knowledge, one moved up the hierarchy, one's body would become more scarified. Right. So, for example, one of the two main leaders of the Amistad Rebellion, a man named Grabo, was described by everyone who saw him as heavily tattooed, meaning he had a very large number of these country marks. And so I suggested that any of the Amistad Africans who took one look at Grebo's body would have known that he was a high-ranking member of the Poro and would therefore have deferred to his authority. All right. That is really interesting. And uh, do you mind if I move to a three-part question? No, that's fine. It's sure. the only way I could think of to ask it. So, obviously, they liberated themselves on board the ship, but uh, when they were incarcerated in Connecticut, they were almost instantly made famous in the American newspapers. You talk about how artists constantly flocked to the jail to draw them. Sinke alone became almost like a national name overnight. And most of the buzz, it seems, was generated by abolitionists um, leading publications and artists. And I guess my first question is, how did the publicity shape the legal outcome of the case as it unraveled in Connecticut or unfolded in Connecticut? And then secondly, how well, did hold, hold on to your second question. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. So that way I don't have to struggle to remember the order of the question. <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, okay, so yes, the, the Amistad case was an utter sensation. Uh, I was going to say the moment they came ashore, but it was actually a sensation before they ever came ashore. That's right, that's right. And, and that is that this this schooner with these African men, all of whom had machetes or cane knives, as they were called, was spotted by various uh, uh, deep-sea vessels off the coast of Long Island. And so newspaper reports began to appear in August of 1839 under the headline, Black pirates. So this actually uh, stimulated the popular imagination. And when they did finally uh, come ashore after they were captured by the U.S. Navy uh, at the end of August of that year, there was already a great deal of popular interest in who these black pirates might have been. Right. So six days after they come ashore, a play is being performed about the Amistad Uprising in the Bowery Theater in New York. The New York Sun, uh, penny press paper with a very wide circulation, reached a lot of urban working people, dispatches not only correspondence, but artists to go to New London to draw images uh, of these Africans and also to report on them. So the key to this is not only abolitionist agitation, which is very important, but in a way the mass media and it was newly mass media of that day because new steam technology had made possible the printing of newspapers at a much cheaper rate. And, uh, and, and this really was very important for spreading the word. So I followed this throughout the book, as you've mentioned, this very high degree of popular interest and also sympathy. 
Right. It wasn't just that people were interested, they were sympathetic. So thousands of people line up at New Haven City, City Jail and walk through. Now, some are just gawking, some are just curious. They, these Africans are exotic. But quite a few of them are go in there and express solidarity. Uh, they talk to the Amistad Africans through translators. They give them money. They give them food. They give them tobacco. It's really a very sympathetic response. My view is that the popular interest in the case actually influenced the legal decision because at every step of the legal process, judges ruled in ways that nobody expected. The abolitionists thought they were going to lose at every moment and at each stage of appeal. They thought they were going to lose, and yet they kept winning. And every one of the judges who wrote an opinion about the case mentioned this very high level of popular interest in it, and I do think the judges may have been somewhat influenced by that. How did anti-abolitionists respond? I mean, you, you mentioned, for example, the Morning Herald as sort of being the voice of opposition to all of this. Um, could you talk about them for a moment? And, and how much of the public ear do you think that they had? Yes, this is fascinating because if the New York Sun was the one great penny press paper uh, rising in the 1830s, the New York Morning Herald was the other. And it turns out they too took a very great interest in the Amistad case, although from a diametrically opposed perspective. The New York Morning Herald was that creature, not uncommon creature, uh, a pro-slavery newspaper in the North. Right. And so their reasons for taking up interest were, one, to essentially paint the Amistad Africans in as negative a light as they could, uh, and thereby to send them, have them sent back to, to uh, Cuba as slaves, and two, to kind of titillate their readers with all this racist uh, commentary. And believe me, it was extreme. And if you read some of these newspaper articles, you can see that this was, uh, you know, racial caricature was the order of the day. Right. And that tends to make the positive images in the New York Sun uh, even all the more remarkable. So the point is, even the penny press was divided. You have the New York Sun producing popular images, the New York Morning Herald producing negative images, but the debate itself produced ever more popular interest. Right. So people wanted to go and see for themselves, and so they go to the jail. And, uh, and in a very real way, I think the uh, intense debate about the Amistad Africans uh, did work very much to their advantage. Right, and you acknowledge that most of the um, accounts in the newspapers uh, were sensationalized, at least to a degree. Um, so how did you go about vetting the sources that you used and sort of um, you know, being careful about how you use them? I don't know if that's a fair question. No, it's a very fair question, and it's one that historians always have to deal with because the truth is that every given source must be interrogated in terms of its own uh, biases in terms of who created it, when they created it, with what purposes. Right. Uh, and, and of course, the, the penny press newspapers, they were, I mean, these were overheated commentaries, both pro and con. That's their idiom. So they have to be used with special care. I think the, the basic answer to the question is, is not only the interrogation of each individual source, but how each source fits into the larger body of sources that you accumulate. Sure. Uh, and, and basically what I was able to do was to read all kinds of different sources, some by abolitionists, some by non-abolitionists. Uh, I was able to read uh, uh, 
uh, reports by everyday people who went into the jail and met the Amazon Africans and wrote about them that way. Uh, there was a pamphlet literature. There were all kinds of newspaper articles. There were polemics. There were so many different points of view. There were articles that appeared in the black press right. in the colored America, and they had their own particular take on things. Uh, and slowly what happened in the process of gathering all this evidence was that very basic big, uh, uh, information cohered in ways that allowed you to judge the quality of the outlying observations. I'll just give you one example. The New York Morning Herald was very inclined to write these uh, sort of wild parodies of who the Africans were, making fun of their African roots. But occasionally you would find that there was a nugget of truth in what they wrote. In other words, you could find that a given African, uh, amid all the things they might say about him, really was a man from the Bondi region, and that he really had been enslaved in a certain way, and that was in the New York Herald report, but that could be confirmed by other evidence. Right. So, so basically, it's a matter of the internal uh, uh, vibration, you might call it, between different pieces of evidence and how they mutually support each other. That's what you base, I think, an ultimate decision on in terms of what is believable and what is not. Could you talk about a few of the most important ways that they work together collectively while incarcerated to attain their eventual freedom? I mean, what role did they play in their own legal defense? I'm thinking here about the fictive kinship, as you describe it, that allowed them to form a collective political consciousness while uh, in jail together. So if you could talk a bit about that, that would be, that'd be great. Yes, well, Ben, I've traced a, a process in this book. Uh, it, it actually begins in Lomboco, which was a slave trading fortress uh, on the Galinas coast of Sierra Leone. This is where all of the Amistad Africans were held before they were loaded onto a Brazilian or Portuguese slave ship, taken to Havana, Cuba, where they were uh, disembarked and then uh, sold and loaded onto the Amistad, where they made their rebellion. In Fort Lomboco, on the first slave ship, in the barracoons of Havana, on the Amistad, and then in Connecticut jails, I've traced a process of forming what anthropologists call fictive kinship. Right. And this is something that goes on. It's been discussed by me and others in the slave trade. People who are not biologically related <clears throat> find themselves treating each other as if they were in fact related and in that way inventing kinship. Right. So there's a very real way in which the Amistad Africans are calling each other brother and, and developing a certain kind of family feeling from very on in their odyssey. This takes a new form uh, after they've been in the Connecticut jail for a while. And what I found is that they come up with a new way of describing themselves uh, they start calling themselves the Mende people. Now, this is very interesting for a variety of reasons, uh, one being that they weren't all Mende. The, of the 35 or 36 who were uh, survivors, long enough about to give us time to get to know them, create documentation about them, about two-thirds of them were Mende, which is a very large uh, you know, ethnic national group in southern Sierra Leone. Right. Uh, and then the, the remaining dozen or so were of you know, five or six other groups. But what happened while they were in jail is that the cultural dominance of the Mende became very important 
Uh, it turns out that many of the non-Mende people were already speaking the Mende language before they uh, came to the New World because the Mende language had been the language of trade in their region because most of the traveling merchants were Mende. Right. So, so there's a there's a, a an ability to communicate, and Mende language is part of that. But what was even more fascinating to me was the fact that the Amasad Africans used this new self-description, the Mende people, in the process of making political demands for themselves. Right. And the notion was, we are the Mende people, we are sovereign, we demand that, and they would give John Quincy Adams instructions about how to represent them in court, and they would tell anybody who would listen, we, the Mende people, want to go home to Mende land. We want to go home to where we are from. This was their main political demand from the beginning uh, to the end. Uh, I've speculated in the book that the source of this creative self-description was very likely the, the political discourse they heard inside American jails where many talked of this great and vast and sovereign power called the American people. Right. This was a republic, and this was the language of the day. And I think what the Amistad Africans saw was that, okay, you're the American people, we're the Mende people, and we will tell you what we want out of this whole ordeal. And that's also, uh, it also stems from their ability to sort of educate themselves and, and teach themselves English. Is that right? I mean, they wouldn't have been able to do that had they not done that while in prison as well. Exactly. Here, the role of the abolitionists is crucial because uh, even though most abolitionists in 1839 were terrified of slave revolts, and many of them were actually formally committed to a program of nonviolent change, they nonetheless flocked in huge numbers into these Connecticut jails in order to work with the Amistad African. Uh, and so here, the insurrectionists, the African insurrectionists and the middle-class reformers met, uh, and they learned from each other. And crucially, the abolitionists wanted to educate the Amistad Africans. They wanted them to learn to read in English. They really wanted them to learn Christianity, wanted to learn arithmetic. They wanted them to become educated, quote, civilized people, end quote, that had a cultural agenda to it and quite a bit of uh, condescension. But nonetheless, the Amistad Africans recognized how important this was, that they needed an alliance with these people to have any chance of going home. So they were willing to do uh, what the abolitionists wanted, and in the process of doing that, they were able to take the skills that they learned, how to write letters in English, for example, and turn those to their own advantage to express their own specifically African identity and their objectives to return to their native land. So let's talk about reverberations for a minute. Can you talk about the Amistad Rebellion's legacy, both in America and in an Atlantic context? Sure. Let's begin with the Atlantic context. Sure. The Amistad Rebellion was uh, was very, very important to a, a global abolition movement. Uh, it was discussed at some length in the World Anti-Slavery uh, Congress that took place in London in 1840. Uh, abolitionists in Britain and France and the United States corresponded about it quite a lot. And this is because a victory really means a lot to a social movement. This was a successful 
uh, slave revolt on a slave ship. These things didn't happen very often. So when it does happen, it kind of fires the imagination of those who are working within the broader movement. So that's, that's one kind of impact. It had another kind of impact uh, on slave owners who are really very angry and a little bit terrified. This is like a miniature version of what happened in the Haitian Revolution, which sent shockwaves around the Atlantic in every different direction after this army of slaves had risen up and defeated uh, imperial powers and declared themselves to be the second free republic in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, Thomas Jefferson himself was terrified beyond uh, all uh, imaginable uh, ends. Uh, Toussaint was to him, uh, you know, the, his greatest nightmare. <laughs> so, so the Amistad version, in a way, kind of brought back the memory of that. And people do compare it to the uh, Haitian Revolution. Uh, others compared it to George Washington. Uh, Cinque was compared to George Washington as the leader of his people, fighting a military battle uh, to gain freedom. So there was this reverberation. Uh, in the slaveholding Atlantic, in the American South, and in the Caribbean. In Africa, what's fascinating is that when the Amistad uh, rebels go home uh, with the missionaries chosen by the white abolitionists, they are inevitably now, back in Sierra Leone, symbols of successful resistance against slavery. And this happens in the context in which uh, African slavery is very widely practiced. So there's a fascinating moment where one of the American missionaries writes home to someone in the States and says, you know, taking these people around with me to meet with slaveholding African kings really doesn't help me spread the gospel at all. It's <laughs> not popular with them. You know, they see them as a threat. And, of course, they would. So in that way, the Amistad Africans took anti-slavery back to West Africa. And took with them some quite serious abolitionist missionaries, men like George Thompson, who was a leading missionary there, who had spent several years in jail for forcibly liberating African slaves in Missouri a few years earlier. He was part of that militant wing of the Underground Railroad. And so now he's practicing anti-slavery in Sierra Leone. So those are some of the Atlantic effects. In the United States, I think the impact is in many ways even greater. And by that I mean the Amistad Rebellion uh, really strengthened the most militant wing of the abolitionist movement, uh, especially the African-American part of that movement. People like Henry Highland Garnett, Frederick Douglass, Robert Purvis, black abolitionists all were very moved by this event, by uh, its implications for freedom, uh, uh, Garnett. Uh, made a call to the slaves of the South saying, you've got to play a a part in your own uh, uh, liberation. Uh, This, I think, was really fascinating. Uh, And there was a phrase used which allows us, I think, to chart the the growing radicalism of the abolition movement. Right in the middle of the Amistad case, we find a black abolitionist, David David Ruggles, uh, saying, those who would be free must themselves strike the first blow. Now, this was actually a quote of something that Lord Byron had written uh, amid the Greek Civil War in the 1820s, but then it gets picked up and repeated by radical abolitionists in the American context. Henry Highland Garnett uses it, Frederick Douglass uses it, 
Others use it. And there's a straight line all the way to John Brown, who in 1859 wants to strike the first blow at Harper's Ferry and incite slave insurrection throughout the South. Right. So I find that the, the Amistad case had an impact that way. It also helped, frankly, to integrate the abolition movement. I think a great many African-American people were drawn into the movement uh, right around 1840 and after uh, the example of a successful revolt was inspiring to them. And I think, uh, again, it's the victory that causes people to think that maybe the larger struggle really is winnable after all. All right. And I do think it's really interesting. It's the ideology that's really important here because none of the parties involved in this in this case um, were American. I mean, yeah. it, it really is an Atlantic event. What we have here are Africans with Cuban owners so-called Cuban owners, raising a revolt in the Caribbean, making it up to northern Long Island, uh, and eventually then winning their freedom in America. So uh, the peculiar characteristics of the case are, are really interesting. I do think that this mentioned this issue we talked about earlier, the popular support for the case, was partly a result of the fact that this case was somehow safer for Americans, white Americans especially, to support because these were Africans, not African Americans. Right. Because the slave owners were Cuban, not American slave owners. So I think that is one of the things that's going on here. But on the other hand, that's a very hard distinction to make, especially when abolitionists are condemning uh, slavery, whether it's in Cuba or the United States, uh, and extolling the virtues of these people who had. Uh, gathered up their courage and risen up in successful revolt. Okay, so um, shifting gears really quick to pedagogy, your last book, The Slave Ship, I, I believe is widely assigned in undergraduate courses across the nation. Do you think that your Amistad book has the same classroom utility, and do you write with this in mind? I hope it does, Ben. I, it will remain to be seen. I mean, one thing I've learned about uh, writing books is that you never know how people will use them. Right. That's up to you know the teachers and readers. But I hope so. I have over the years uh, made uh, an increasingly conscious effort to write my books for uh, ever broader audiences. Right. Uh, I think uh, this is something that has been important to me. And I wrote the slave ship, uh, frankly, because of the coming bicentennial. It would have been 2008, uh, of the abolition of the slave trade. I wrote that book as a contribution to what I hope to be a discussion of the legacy of slavery and the slave trade in the United States. Well, that discussion never really happened. Uh, but nonetheless, I do think it's something we have to face. And uh, I try to see that book and this one as contributions to that discussion of what slavery and resistance to slavery have meant in the United States. So I guess I'd like to end on a, a personal question that's related to that, if you don't mind. So you're not only an historian, but an activist. Um, and you say that your idea for your last book, The Slave Ship, which spurred the writing of this book, first came to you while you were involved in a campaign against the death penalty and visiting prisoners on death row. So what is the connection between your activism and your scholarship? I believe that uh, activism can enrich scholarship, and I think uh, this particular uh, case, I mean, I can speak to this directly for myself at least. Uh, I've, I've been involved in the uh, 
struggled to abolish the death penalty in the United States and around the world for a number of years. And in the process of visiting people on death row, there is almost always uh, inevitably a discussion of the death penalty as an act of terror and whether it's an effective act of terror. And when you see the racial composition of death row, uh, you discover that it is disproportionately African-American. And then you have to think about the relationship between race and terror in the United States. This is a very important subject that has a long history. Lynching is a major part of it. That's one of the clearest expressions of the relationship between race and terror. Uh, I should just say that in Pennsylvania, uh, my state, I teach at the University of Pittsburgh, we have the most racially disparate death row in the United States. By that I mean, if you compare the percentage of death row that is African-American to the percentage of the state population that is African-American, there is a greater disparity than in any other country, any other state in the country. Wow. And and a lot of this has to do with the racial politics of Philadelphia and how uh, African-American people are routinely prosecuted with the death penalty in mind. Uh, so that's a that that's something that is definitely part of all this, and uh, in the middle of this kind of conversation, it suddenly dawned on me that the slave ship was the place where the relationship between race and terror was perhaps first established. Right. In other words, one of the things I saw that was happening on slave ships is that race, the idea of race, the category of race, was being formed for both the Africans and the crew. Uh, In other words, uh, multi-ethnic mass of humanity is loaded onto the slave ship, but on the other end of the voyage, they're no longer multi-ethnic and Fante or Igbo or whatever it may be. They are now members of a so-called Negro race. Right. So there's race-making going on aboard the ship. And of course, violence is central to how it was made. So I realized that I could study this relationship between race and violence, race and terror, and that the slave ship would be an important way uh, to do it. And so you could say, in a very literal sense, uh, the idea, the central idea of that book came out of the experience of activism um, against the death penalty. Now, relatedly... I was always conscious as I was going into prison to visit people that one of the most important things that those who had struggled against the institution of slavery had done would be to work with those people who were on the front line of the battle. For example, abolitionists who worked with runaway slaves, try to publicize their stories or fight their battles in court or uh, even help them to bring the story of their lives to a reading public. the very same thing happened in New Haven when all of these abolitionists went into New Haven jail to work with the Amistad Africans. They were literally going to the front line of the struggle. I felt like that's what I was doing in going to death row, and I wanted to be a kind of a messenger for that reality to let people know uh, what it was, to try to make it real for people. And this, of course, has been a goal in writing about the slave ship and in writing about the Amistad Rebellion to make those things, to make those realities uh, something palpable for people. 
Uh, I wanted to do that. Uh, more literally, uh, after having written about the horrors of the slave ship, uh, I wanted to write about, uh, in a more hopeful vein, how a small group of people could win the most unlikely battle against two of the world's most powerful governments, Spain and the United States, of whom wanted to send them back to Cuba. This small group of people had managed to achieve something almost unthinkable. I mean, it really is, it's kind of a stunning victory. It's the most unlikely thing you can imagine. Uh, and to me, this is something that's very hopeful about uh, history from below, about rebellions that rise from below uh, unpredictably. They can have the, the most unlikely consequences. And so you think, think of it this way. This motley group of Africans on a small vessel on the north coast of Cuba uh, make a collective decision using their African cultural institution, the Poro Society. Uh, they draw upon their military experience as warriors to carry out a successful fight. They win the battle. They have enough sailing skill to get the ship all the way up to the northern end of Long Island, where slavery has already been abolished. That gives them a chance to win their case in court. They go home. But within a year of having taken that vessel, that group of really totally unknown people, a very small group of had the most important people in the world debating what they had done. The Queen of England, the Queen of Spain, the British Parliament, American presidents, Supreme Court justices, U.S. Congress, senators like John Calhoun, carrying on. The most powerful people in the world had been commanded by their action to take account of all this. And I find that to be a really uh, uplifting part of the story and a, a totally unexpected part. Well, that's very eloquently stated. Um, and that about rounds out our time. So, Professor Redeker, thank you very much for coming on New Books in American Studies. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Ben. I've, uh, I've enjoyed talking with you. And to the listeners, once again, the title of the book we've been discussing is The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom, out in 2012 from Viking Penguin. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>